Section 15 of The Age of Elizabeth by Vandell Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 4, Home Government of Elizabeth, Chapter 1, Elizabeth and Home Affairs. The events of the beginning of Elizabeth's reign succeeded one another in such quick succession that in tracing them up to this point we have seen Elizabeth only as a politician. We have seen how, by a cautious, though often tortuous, policy, she had managed to preserve her own interests and those of England from foreign attack, and at the same time had fostered at home a feeling of national unity. In the full light which has lately been thrown upon the events of this time, it is easy enough to find fault with Elizabeth's policy, to show how selfish and ungenerous it was, to upbraid her with indifference to the great interests of Protestantism in general. But it must be remembered that England, when Elizabeth ascended the throne, was not in a position to interfere decisively in the affairs of Europe. Its entire population barely reached five millions. The Queen's revenues amounted to no more than five hundred thousand pounds a year. The treasury was in debt, the coinage was debased. Commerce was languishing, the people were poor. There was a danger that religious difficulties would cause a civil war. It is scarcely reasonable to demand from Elizabeth a bold policy under such circumstances. She was compelled to husband the country's resources, to avoid war, to play off her enemies against one another. She learnt an economy which soon became habitual to her and degenerated into stinginess. She took care to get from all around her as much as she could in the way of presents and to make the scantiest returns. She sold her help to the Huguenots and to the Netherlanders at the highest rate she could. When Lester died, the man for whom she felt as much affection as she was capable of, she dried her tears and ordered that his goods should be seized in payment of money she had lent him. So, too, she learnt to gain her ends by swagger, by threats, by underhand means, by subterfuges, by barefaced lies, if these were convenient. It may be allowed that a cautious policy was necessary for Elizabeth, but no excuse can be urged for her unblushing deceit. She took to diplomacy with a woman's thoroughness and a woman's willfulness. Acting with perfect seriousness, she often by her falseness produced a ridiculous caricature. She told lies that deceived no one. In both her letters and speeches, she wrapped up her meaning in ambiguous phrases and complicated sentences, which it was impossible to understand with any precision. She gave orders in such a way that she might disavow them if she pleased. She liked her ministers to act without definite orders, sometimes on their own responsibility, and then to bear the consequences if the scheme failed. She was averse to war, partly because it cost money, with which she grieved to part, partly because war broke off the opportunities for diplomacy in which she thought that she excelled but her motive was very greatly a generous feeling for her people and a true instinct for the national wants. No war, my lords, she would often exclaim at the council, striking the table with her fist. No war. 
and this resolve of hers often checked the great schemes of her more aspiring ministers and enabled England to grow into its necessary strength. She felt no sympathy for the Netherlanders in their struggle with Philip. Their misery in no way appealed to her generosity. She drew out of their misfortunes all the commercial advantages she could to England. She only sent them aid when she was afraid they would cease to resist and so make Philip too powerful. She never expected for a moment that they would make good their position as against Philip. She advised them to make peace with Philip and could not understand their persistence about religious freedom. Nor did she approve of subjects refusing to obey their prince in such matters. She was even ready to help Philip against them if she could gain thereby an advantageous settlement of England's difficulties with Spain. Elizabeth was indeed incapable of generous sympathy with the revolt against religious persecution, for she was not herself a woman of deep religious convictions. She was a Protestant chiefly because it was impossible for the daughter of Anne Boleyn to take her place in Europe as a Catholic sovereign. But though she was a Protestant, she hated Puritanism because she felt that the utterances of such a man as John Knox were widely opposed to her own ideas of a sovereign's position and power. She wished to see a religious system prevail which should rob Catholicism and Puritanism alike of their fanaticism, yet should be a genuine expression of the religious feeling of the people at large. She was annoyed at all attempts to alter the established ceremonies in either of the extreme directions, and was always ready to administer a corrective. When Puritanism seemed to be growing too strong, she set up a crucifix in her chapel and lit the candles upon the altar. When the dean of St. Paul's thought to please her by putting on her cushion a richly illuminated prayer book, she frowned and put it from her, and scolded the dean soundly when service was over. It was, however, very difficult for her to maintain the moderate character which she desired to give to the established church. The clergy, who almost all retained their benefices in spite of the religious changes made by Elizabeth's succession, were as a body inclined to the old religion. The most high-minded amongst them had resigned their benefices rather than submit, those who remained were the least zealous. The lower clergy did not number many men of education. The country parishes were even sometimes handed over to the care of one who had been the squire's butler, or who deserved a pension from him for some service. It was difficult with such men as these to establish the new rights on an orderly footing, and the queen was often angered by the news of some disorders. The marriage of the clergy especially, being a shock at first to the current popular sentiment on the subject, gave rise to many scandals. The clergy married unfit wives, and were not scrupulous how they provided for them. The church vestments and other possessions were sometimes seen turned into ornaments for the clergymen's wives. This was especially a scandal in the case of cathedral chapters, which had been under monastic discipline. The queen forbade any member of a college or cathedral to have his wife living within the precincts. She disliked the marriage of the clergy and refused to rescind the law prohibiting it which had been passed in Mary's reign. The marriage of the clergy was connived at, but not legalized, and when the queen paid a visit to Archbishop Parker, she took leave of Mrs. Parker, saying, 
Madam, I may not call you. Mistress, I am loath to call you, but I thank you for your cheer. The ecclesiastical difficulties of Elizabeth's position made themselves more and more distinctly felt as her reign went on. At first, the idea of separating from the national church was not one which suggested itself. Though the Catholics objected to Elizabeth's changes, they did not at first withdraw themselves entirely from the church services. But as the conflict between the two religions became more definite, no further concessions could be made on either side. The Catholics, though they might not be openly disloyal, were still suspected of desiring the accession of Mary of Scotland, and after the bull of Pope Pius V against Elizabeth and the Rudolphi plot, the laws against Catholicism were made more severe and were more rigorously carried out. Even as against Catholicism, Protestantism in England did not present an undivided front. The Puritan party submitted as little as did the Catholics to the ecclesiastical observances which had been established. They objected that much remained which savored of superstition. They tried to assert their right to disobedience. But irregularities in the conduct of the church services seemed to the queen to be intolerable. Conformity in the use of the surplice was required by Archbishop Parker, and those clergymen who refused to comply were suspended from their livings. They soon began to form conventicles, which were suppressed by law in 1567. The Puritans, in opposition to the law, began to form themselves into the sects of Protestant dissenters in England. The great questions of the 16th and 17th century were religious questions. The difficulty was how to maintain the old political system when the old ecclesiastical system, which had been so closely connected with it, was overthrown. The reign of Elizabeth shows us how the old system, now everywhere conscious of its danger, was making efforts to reassert its ascendancy. These efforts were repelled at first by the care and caution, afterwards by the vigor and energy of England. But when England had made good its own position against foes outside, there remained for Elizabeth's successors the adjustment of the limits between the old political system, as yet but slightly modified, and the new ecclesiastical ideas. This adjustment was hard to make, when the idea of tolerance was equally far from all contending parties. Elizabeth ought not to be too severely found fault with as a persecutor, if, at a time when the nation was going through a fierce struggle for its existence, she demanded a definite basis of unity. The state adapted the old ecclesiastical system with the fewest possible changes to the new ecclesiastical ideas, and demanded after this measure of reform the same unconditional obedience as before. Those who were content with the old state of things, and those who wished for further change, were both of them to be reduced to a common measure. The change that had passed over England was not to cause division. She must still offer to her enemies, at a time when ecclesiastical matters were the chief matters of politics, an undivided front. On the one hand, there was to be no breach with the old system of European politics. On the other hand, there was to be freedom from all that was most degrading and weakening in the old state of things. These were the views of Elizabeth and her advisers, but they did not and could not know the strength of the forces against which they were contending. 
not till after the struggles of more than two centuries was it seen that there are in man convictions too strong to be curbed by motives of political expediency. Elizabeth's ecclesiastical system was not a permanent solution of the questions raised by the Reformation. She would neither broaden the basis of the established church, nor would she allow the formation of independent sects outside it. She left to her successors the task of solving the difficulties which this policy had wrought. For herself, she was determined to keep the clergy in order by means of the bishops. Grindal, who succeeded Parker as Archbishop of Canterbury in 1575, found to his cost that the royal supremacy was not a mere empty name. The Queen was alarmed at the growth of a custom of clerical meetings, prophesyings, as they were called. These meetings were meant for discussion and for practice in readiness of speech, that the clergy might be trained to preaching. The Queen, however, did not approve of preaching. To read the homilies was enough. She did not like clerical discussions in the existing condition of religious opinion. She ordered the bishops to put down these prophesyings. When Archbishop Grindle refused to interfere, he was suspended from his office and for five years was not allowed to exercise his functions. Nor did the Queen and other matters show to her bishops the respect which she demanded for them from others. She would keep bishoprics vacant and appropriate their revenues to her own purposes. Often she would detach a manor from their possessions in the interest of a favorite. When the Bishop of Ely showed some reluctance to abandon to Sir Christopher Hatton the gardens of Ely House, the Queen wrote him a peremptory letter. Proud prelate, I understand that you are backward in complying with your agreement, but I would have you know that I who made you what you are can unmake you, and if you do not forthwith fulfill your engagement, I will immediately unfrock you. Yours as you demean yourself, Elizabeth. On another occasion, when the Bishop of London preached before the Queen a sermon on the vanity of dress, the Queen told her ladies, if the Bishop held more discourse on such matters, she would soon fit him for heaven, but he should walk thither without a staff and leave his mantle behind him. Elizabeth, however, acted wisely in the measures which she took for the restoration of commerce and prosperity within her country. The reign of Elizabeth is the epoch from which dates the naval and commercial greatness of England, and the Queen's care and attention contributed in no slight degree to this result. One of the earliest measures of her reign was the restoration of the coinage, which had been so debased by her predecessors that it was worth only one-third of its nominal value. To call in the debased coinage and melt it down, and to issue a new coinage whose worth should correspond to its intrinsic value, was no easy task for an impoverished exchequer. Yet it was accomplished without causing much hardship, and when it had been done, English merchants could again carry on their business with foreign countries. The most important branch of English commerce had always been the woolen trade with Flanders. English cloth was exported to the Flemish marts, and there sold to merchants from the rest of Europe. Twice every year the company of merchant adventurers fitted out a fleet of fifty or sixty ships to convey their goods to the Netherlands. It is computed that about 100,000 pieces of cloth were shipped thither annually. 
1553 a number of merchants and nobles equipped three ships to explore a northern passage to India. Two of them were lost in the ice, but the third, commanded by Richard Chancellor, made its way to Archangel and laid the foundation of the trade with Russia. In 1557 came an ambassador from the Emperor of Muscovy. The merchant adventurers rode forth to meet him in procession, dressed in velvet with chains of gold around their necks, that they might impress the Muscovite with their wealth and so make his countrymen desirous of trading with them. The increasing importance of English commerce was shown in 1560 by the building of the Royal Exchange. Sir Thomas Gresham, a wealthy merchant who had lived long in Flanders, contrasted the splendor of the Flemish traders with the discomfort of London, where all business had to be done by merchants standing in all weathers on the narrow pavement of Lombard Street. He accordingly erected a brick building with a quadrangle inside, round which on the ground floor was an arched colonnade supported on marble pillars where the merchants might walk. Below were vaults for merchandise, and on the first floor were shops, from the rent of which Gresham hoped to reimburse himself. The exchange was visited in state by Elizabeth, who was so pleased with it that she caused it by an herald and a trumpet to be proclaimed the Royal Exchange, and so to be called from thenceforth and not otherwise. Commerce, however, is not a thing which it lies in the power of princes to develop by patronage, though they may help it by their general policy. Elizabeth managed to keep England in peace when the rest of Europe was involved in war. Moreover, her rule was economical, and the taxes were not oppressive. England under her was relieved from its public debt, and its capital found occupation in trade at a time when the commerce of the Netherlands was checked by internal disturbances. A spirit of naval adventure took deep root among all classes, and may be seen especially in the voyages of Sir Humphrey Gilbert and Martin Frobisher in quest of a northwest passage to the fabulous region of Cathay. The perils of the Arctic regions were experienced first by English seamen, and the line of investigation then opened out has ever remained peculiar to English enterprise. End of section 15